0: We are going on a journey, a very long journey, through the world of the Target novelizations in publication order. Every week, we are looking at a new book, talking about Terrence Dix, Malcolm Hulk, and all our Doctor Who novelization friends. Whatever you do, keep turning the pages. This is Jason Miller of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast a member of the Direction Point Podcast Network, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Rupert Boo.
1: I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram.
0: Time Ram's a cruel mistress,
1: it's a random
0: number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 13, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time Ram. Putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Carol-Anne Ford. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the book club podcast in which we undertake the massive project of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the unearthly task of discussing in-story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally unearthly three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me... There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts. And this time, it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. You didn't even have to try with that one. It was just right there in front of you. <laughs> yeah, I know. It actually worked. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alice and the Fitch Seyfried. Hello, allison hello if you like what you're hearing check out our patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dw target depending on the amount you give per month you receive among other possible goodies stuff i don't know yet (laughs) just like giving to pbs but not a target book since we know you have so many of them you keep them in an old junkyard where teenagers go to make out, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painters, Joseph Milton Welling, and Louise Dennis. Thank you all. What a bumper crop,
2: thank you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. As a special treat for the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who, we are looking back at the novelization of the very first story, one which we have not discussed with this particular set of panelists before. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and an Unearthly Child, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Anthony Coburn that aired from 11-23-63 to 12-14-63, published by Target Books in October 1981. As of this recording in December 2023, this title is out of print, 128 pages. Our decision to revisit this book was a last-minute thing, owing to various scheduling issues with our planned episode at Chicago TARDIS, which is why our normal group of readers will not have seen a Goodreads entry for this one in our Goodreads group, for which I apologize profusely. That being said, we didn't even have a Goodreads group back when we first recorded this one, so it really is like going back in time. (laughs) Uh, our first episode was released on january 13th 2017 so we're a few years away from having any sort of proper anniversary we're not going to have our 10th anniversary until 2027 so we're a few years out for that i'm just glad i didn't go with the original title for this podcast, which was targeting Doctor Who. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. When I went back and I looked at the uh, recording to say, oh, I need to go find some stuff for this, I didn't realize that was the original title. I'm so glad we went with the huge amount of words that we currently have. Mm -hmm. Doctor Who, however, celebrated its 60th anniversary a couple of weeks ago, and that's something to celebrate. There's been so much written about this show and how it was created, how the first episode was shot twice, how President Kennedy was shot, well, actually more than once on the day that it went out. Oh Oh my god, I can't believe I actually said that. But it's true. President Kennedy was assassinated the day before this went out. And so, the day that it was supposed to go out was the 23rd of November, 1963. Obviously, it didn't get the numbers it could have gotten, so they repeated the first episode before airing the second episode the week after. Hmm. That's the actual ordering of events. Wow. (laughs) Wow. none of that was in the script which is why it was all over the place because if i just stuck to the script if i had not gone off target (laughs) then it would have been fine so instead of spending our time in 1963 which i just fucking did we're going to talk briefly about 1981 because that has to do with this book In order to hype up Peter Davison's first season, which was due to start in January of 1982, producer John Nathan Turner got papal dispensation from the BBC to do a two-month season of repeats called The Five Faces of Doctor Who. This was a big deal, as the BBC up to that point had not really rerun much of the show at all, and some viewers had never seen a Hartnell, Troughton, or Pertwee story, much less the very first one. J&T arranged to broadcast the four episodes of An Unearthly Child on BBC2 over the nights of November 2nd to November 5th, 1981. This would be followed by repeats of the Crotons, presumably because J&T hated the fans. (laughs) I was just gonna say, oh (laughs) my god. (laughs) Yeah. Of all the Troughton stories they could have chosen, well, that's just it. They didn't have that many Troughton stories they could have chosen yeah. that were complete. They could have done The Dominators, but that was five episodes. Hmm. And I'm trying to think what else would have been complete at that time. Probably The War Games, but that's ten episodes. Yeah. This, this is
2: a situation where they had missing episodes? Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize it was that many missing, that it was just a Swiss cheese collection from Troughton. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> there there weren't that many complete stories and the crotons was probably the only complete four-parter and they were going for four-parters you'll notice because carnival of monsters was the one for pertwee then they did the three doctors presumably because you can't have enough pertwee and logopolis which had just aired there was just one snag there had never been a novelization of the very first story up to that point in fact, many fans up to that point honestly thought The Daleks was the first Doctor Who story because David Whitaker, in writing his novelization of that story, introduced Ian and Barbara there. That was even the answer to the Trivial Pursuit question. Oh, what was really? the first Doctor Who story? Yep. Mm. For the longest time, it was wrong in the Trivial wow. Pursuit set because <laughs> the answer to that question was The Daleks. The epistemology of a generation blown apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, I should go and look in my uh, Trivial Pursuit set, because it dates back to that time. So a lot of the answers are wrong. And I bet it's in there. Because of this, there really hadn't been much of a desire to publish a novel for the first one. Especially since many consider only the first episode and a few minutes of the second episode to be actually worth anyone's time. As soon as they get to the cavemen, most people tune out. Mm. So John Nathan Turner contacted the target editor at that time, Christine Doniger, in July 1981 to discuss doing a novel of the story in time for the repeat. As it turns out, they barely made it. Permission had to first be secured from the widow of the original scriptwriter, which was Anthony Coburn. Then Terence Dicks had to be commissioned to write the book, which was only the second Heartless story he'd done up to that point. The first one being the Dalek Invasion of Earth in 1977. He did the book in two weeks.
1: Holy crap! Which
0: was a record even for him. He had never written a book so quickly. Cover artist Andrew Skillicorn had even less time to paint the cover image. He did that painting over a single weekend, which is insane. The book was released in both hardback and paperback simultaneously only two weeks before the story began airing in November. Since then, this book has been translated into two other languages, as Dr. Who on in French in 1987, and Dr. Who und das Kind von den Sternen in German in 1990. I'll let you guess which one of those foreign language titles is actually closest to the original title because he's got a 50 50 chance
1: (laughs) i know the german one is the french doctor who enters the scene
0: yeah yeah fair enough yeah exactly doctor who arrives on stage essentially yeah oh my god to date no audiobook has been released though there was going to be former target editor nigel robinson wrote a new audio version of this read by william russell they completed it Then it got cancelled when Audio Go went out of business. The recordings are still out there, unreleased. They have not even been heard by Nigel Robinson himself. Oh, wow. And this is all due to a certain person that I'm going to talk about now. Because... That same person is the reason why this story cannot currently be watched on streaming services, because Anthony Coburn's son, Steph Coburn, has turned out to be as close to a Trump supporter as anyone can be and still be British. He has denied permission to the BBC to use the first story, saying that his father would quote, be outraged at what generations of progressively more corrupted BBC filth have done.
2: And he doesn't want to edify the public with this content?
0: I guess not.
2: He, he doesn't think it will reform us?
0: No, he apparently doesn't. <laughs> We're beyond reformation. Exactly. So if Steph Coburn is listening to this episode, fuck you. That is all I have to say about that.
2: I thought that Unearthly Child had aired on the Pluto Doctor Who
0: channel. It did, but he revoked all of the permissions. It it may still be on Pluto, but that may be because it hasn't timed out yet. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That could very well be it.
2: Because I've seen a few minutes of this.
0: It could still be on Pluto. It may still be on Tubi, because I've noticed that Tubi actually has all of them. But I haven't looked to see if Unearthly Child is there. Tony from the Future here. I have just checked on Tubi, and it indeed is not on Tubi. As a matter of fact, they list the Daleks as Season 1, Episode 1. Thus continuing the long-standing history of misinformation because of the radical right. Anyway, back to your podcast.
2: That's interesting. That was several months ago, and quite frankly, reading this, it could have been any part of the story. It's Barbara and Ian screaming in the woods, so it really could have happened at any time.
0: Yeah, that's true. So, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover. I so rarely do these anymore that I'm going to take the honor this time, so why not? Mm -hmm. First publication of the very first Doctor Who story, in yellow letters... A strange girl who knows far more than she should about the past and the future. Two worried teachers whose curiosity leads them to a deserted junkyard, an extraordinary police box, and a mysterious traveler known only as the Doctor. A fantastic journey through space and time, ending in a terrifying adventure at the dawn of history Doctor Who and an unearthly child, the beginning of a legend. And that's it. Yeah. Interesting. Not the greatest back cover. That's for sure.
2: Well, but they've already sold it with the front cover. First publication of the very first Doctor Who story. That that is a pitch.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I was just about to ask what your first impression was, Allison, so I assume that was one of the things that impressed you when you first saw it.
2: Well, and I actually really liked the illustration because the impression I got was maybe the original TARDIS in a prop warehouse somewhere.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 Which
2: I think it's, I assume it's supposed to be in the junkyard, but it, I actually thought it was nice for a 1981 publication of a 1963 story or 1981 no, adaptation of a 1963 story.
0: Anders Skeletor was actually working from a photo from, ah, from a, a pl- publicity photo from one of the stories, but I don't know which one, but it, it wasn't from the original story.
2: Vastly preferable to most of the selections they could have made from the caveman portion of the story. Yeah, this is true. But it is interesting they didn't go with any of the cast. There's no picture of Hartnell or or anyone else.
0: No, Mm -mm. no, because they wouldn't have done that. I know for a fact what they did for the reissue, which I believe is 1991. For the Blue Spine covers, as they're called, because Virgin re released almost all of the Target novelizations in the early 90s when they took over the imprint. And they commissioned specially new artwork, and the artwork that they did for that cover is really lovely. And it features the Doctor and Susan, and their faces are kind of mashed together a little bit, like two halves of the same face. Mm. I Um,
2: thought you meant, like, a prom photo. No, no, no. God, no.
0: No, no. No, no. In fact, if you do a Google search for Doctor Who Unearthly Child book cover, it'll come up. And it's actually quite nice. Dalton, what was your first impression when you first saw this? Well, I do remember
1: you sending this to me, because I asked you to, two or three years ago. Yes. And I did read it back then, and so I don't quite remember... My my first impression of that, I just remembered thinking, hey, I wasn't on those first two episodes, but I'm invested in these early Who stories in a way that I never thought I would be. So I need to read this. And so I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I read this one, and I'm pretty sure I read the Daleks as well. Yes, you did. So... I, I will say uh, revisiting this maybe this isn't my first impression but my my revisited impression is that it made me appreciate Ian and Barbara it made me appreciate the first doctor and it's since we are doing this kind of for the 60th anniversary and like all the anniversaries they they are a way for us to kind of look back at at the series and kind of see the things that we enjoy about it and pick apart things and yeah having been kind of in fifth doctor mode for the past few months now it's like oh right yeah hartnell's doctor was a character just the way that tom baker's doctor was and and, and davison's doctor were it's just i'm not as familiar with it but having read all of the the majority of the stories from the first doctor up through the fifth doctor now it's nice to to be back here i guess
0: (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely something that we noted when we did our panel at chicago tardis larry van mercebrigen and i Uh, did that panel. And that episode just got released today. So listeners at home, we are recording this on the night of the day that I released that episode. So if
2: Dalton and I are discussed in a a dark light on that panel. We don't know about it yet, and we're still friends with Tony. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, you weren't even mentioned. Are you kidding? Yeah, no one even knows about the two of you. No, that's I'm kidding, of course. But what we noted on that panel is that of all the Doctor Who novelizations where the author went off script and changed the story, and usually for the better, it was a Hartnell book. Mm-hmm. more often than not that was almost always the case yeah. this is not one of those books <laughs> fair enough yeah I, and i'm not saying that terence dicks didn't make it better i'm just saying he didn't change it
2: and it remind us approximately what year did terence dicks start writing these novelizations
0: 1974 went whenever the novelization of the Auton invasion went out and when was his, his last one That would have been, we've already read it, in fact. I think it's Space Pirates. Chronologically, anyway, we have not read our last Terrence Dicks book.
2: I ask because chronicling Terrence Dicks' fatigue with these stories is something of an (laughs) off-label hobby that we've had here. He doesn't seem tired of it yet.
0: No, he's not. Mm
2: -hmm. I'm actually surprised that it was as far into his his doctor who adaptation career
0: yeah he still has a few novelizations after this not nearly as many as he had before it Mm -hmm. but yeah in fact i am looking it up right now and auton invasion was released at the same time as doctor who and the cave monsters and that would have been january 17th 1974 So the first novelization he did was 1974, and the last one, I'm looking it up right now, I'm almost certain it's Space Pirates, and that would be 1990. So, Mm. yeah. I I want to double-check that, though, because something is nagging at the back of my head and saying, you fool you. It's not the Space Pirates, but it looks like it might be, unless...
2: But you answered my question. This is about halfway through.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Planet of Giants was January 1990, and Space Pirates was March 1990. So yeah, I was right, Space Pirates. Hmm. This is kind of smack dab in the middle of his novelizing, though he's going to do fewer and fewer as the 80s go on. It's not a last hurrah by any means certainly not
1: that well i think we've talked about this before too like the later we get a lot of them are written
0: by the actual story writers correct Mm -hmm. exactly yeah Yeah, they couldn't do that with anthony coburn because anthony coburn and ah, i gotta look this up now (laughs) (laughs) i should have had (laughs) this yeah sorry about that it's just like
2: that's your your other personality has to look this up right now, and he'll be back with us
0: shortly. He, um, Anthony Cooper died in 1977 at the age of 49. So, mm. yeah.
2: Well, and is it in the late 70s where the books come out as the episodes air?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was right around that time. But, of course, as we said, nobody really had much interest at all in novelizing this one because there was a perfectly good novelization of the what everyone thought was the very first doctor who story which was the daleks and in some ways it is somewhat better written (laughs) it's certainly a better story i was gonna say yeah it's definitely a better story Um, yeah it's absolutely a better story which is why most people look at it and say ah so this is, this is like the pilot that everyone wants to forget
1: about before the show really kind of gets its legs.
0: <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing. That thing that I said in our introduction, and I said only the first episode and a couple minutes of episode two are worthwhile to people. Mm-hmm. It's because the pilot, the first episode, is great. As soon as they encounter the cavemen, that's when the story kind of falls apart. Mm -hmm. A little bit. And that falls apart. It just loses some of its steam and interest.
2: It's right up there with that uh, caveman episode of Fantasy Island in terms of uh, historical rigor, I think.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Anthropological quality. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I have recently watched a YouTube video where somebody sang the praises of this entire first story and said, yes, even the caveman stuff is important and interesting. And sure enough, it is. I mean, it does set up the character of the Doctor as (sighs) not what he's going to be later. Later on, the Doctor will famously be described as never cruel, never cowardly. Mm -hmm. Here, he is both. But I
2: thought that was one of the engaging parts of it is we're used to the first Doctor being very cantankerous. Yeah. But also in know-it-all, and we're used to him actually knowing quite a bit, if not quite all of it. mm mm-hmm. uh, We're used to him being omnicompetent.
0: Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. here,
2: him being kind of a chicken and not knowing what to do. Well, we are used to the Doctor bluffing that he knows what to do as he tries to figure out what to do, but... He usually does a better job than this that, that was that was interesting, like Dalton was talking about sort of tre- finding the feet of the character,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. And he seemed a little gentler, like you're saying, like we're used to the First Doctor being such a curmudgeon. And he's kind of that way with Ian and Barbara at the beginning when he's worried about them coming into the TARDIS and figuring him out. But then as the story goes along, yeah, he's a little gentler. He's a little unsure. And something I thought was interesting, if I'm remembering correctly, Terrence Dix describes the First Doctor as having an open face. Yes. Which is what we get for the fifth Doctor. Yeah. (laughs) And so I was like,
0: that's unusual, but okay. Oh, just wait till we get Terrence Dick's first description of the sixth Doctor. Because it was noted in no less than Doctor Who magazine that it sounds a little too much like the description that he does of Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, these stock descriptions only go so far. And bear in mind, though, this is only the second time he's ever had to write a description of Hartnell. Mm-hmm. Dalek invasion of Earth. It reads much the same way. And also his, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna call it. I'm gonna say his animus towards Barbara Wright. <laughs> He is also present in that book, but to a lesser degree, because he does not seem to like Barbara too terribly much.
2: She screams too much, but I assume that was in the episode. It
0: was, yeah.
2: Because he actually does place quite a bit of emphasis on Barbara being compassionate and that being the strategic turning point. Yes, I thought it was actually a lot less Barbara hate than I recalled from Dix
0: yeah I think I was reacting to it a lot more because when we first get a description of her he's taking some of what we think of as her strengths and presenting them as negatives
2: I thought he was talking about how she was perceived as others. She would be described as, you know, a schoolmistress. But it, I think he says something like it's somewhat unfair to to look at her that way. Yeah. Maybe I was just so bracing myself for Barbara Hay that I thought it was much more pleasant than I expected. Well, in the first
0: <laughs> chapter, he does say that Ian and Barbara are only friends because only Ian can see the kindness beneath Barbara Wright's rather severe exterior. So it's like, okay, he's at least saying there's kindness there, but. Uh, well, she is, to be honest, she is kind of like that in the episode. <laughs> she is very definitely a severe school teacher. She's not the warm individual that we come to know from the books that we've read with her. Mm-hmm. But he really kind of is laying it on just a little bit thick. Oh, Dalton, to go back to what you were saying about yeah. Hartnell's character, or rather the doctor being kinder and gentler somewhat, here. Yeah. That was deliberate, especially in the first episode, because there is an unaired pilot episode. Mm. And it okay. is available now on DVD and presumably on Blu-ray somewhere. Oh oh that's right, it's not on Blu-ray, but it is on DVD. And in that unaired pilot, the doctor is much more harsh and Susan is much more unearthly. To the point of being downright alien. There's just no point of comparison between her and the Susan we end up getting. Okay. And basically, the person who we would now call the showrunner, Sidney Newman, who essentially created Doctor Who, looked at it and said, Oh, yeah, this isn't working quite too well. We need to tone this down a bit. So he had Anthony Coburn go back, rewrite the first episode... And they reshot it.
1: Mm, okay.
0: Yeah. So there is a softening of the character for sure. And I guess Coburn went back to the harsher version for the remaining three episodes, especially when we get the nearly homicidal doctor at one point. <laughs> so, yeah.
2: Well, and homicidal no. in a very emotional and cowardly way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which was unusual. Sometimes we've seen the doctor be somewhat cold blooded. Mm hmm but always in a very calculated way. Mm-hmm. Not out of panic like that. Yeah. So not sort of out of a fear that manifests as brutality, as we saw here.
0: Yeah, the fact that he was picking up that stone to basically bludgeon the sky to death in front of everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that is not the Doctor we know. <sighs> the, the
2: parts that I found most interesting were the ones that were not followed up on. So I thought the most interesting parts about... I keep wanting to say Emily. Susan. Susan. I I thought the the most interesting part about Susan is when Barbara and Ian are discussing her. Mm. And I guess, were they discussing her today, they talk about, so is Susan on the spectrum, or what's going on (laughs) with her home life? Uh, And I was very excited to meet Susan based on their description of her, and that was it, almost. We had a little bit of Susan in the junkyard, and then she could almost be absent from the rest of the story. Yeah. She's always following someone else's lead. I, not not all the time, but um, I thought we would maybe have more of a Susan story than we did. And I was interested, since this was such a late adaptation and that came out in 81, I was interested to see what, if anything, would be put in about what the Doctor and Susan had been up to up to this point. Have right. they been traveling? Is this truly their first adventure? Does she go to school for a few months at a lot of different time periods if she's sort of doing a survey of educational systems. (laughs) And we didn't go any more into where they were up to now, which I thought was interesting since there is now so much backstory, 1981 established.
0: Yeah. I think part of the reason why you were expecting more Susan in the story is because the book is called An An Unearthly Child. Mm Mm-hmm. And the reason why it's called An Unearthly Child is because the first episode was called An Unearthly Child. Because this is back in the day when individual episodes had individual titles. There was an overarching story title, but it never appeared on screen. The only thing that appeared on screen was the episode title for that particular individual episode. So technically, only the first episode is called An Unearthly Child. In fact... Terrence Dix does use a couple of the other episode titles as chapter titles. So there's that. In fact, I think those are in in my notes. Let me double check that real quick, because I know I would have written that in my notes. Yes, chapter eight is named after episode three. Okay. And chapter 11 is named after episode four. So they are there. But those would have been the uh, individual episode titles. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Chapter 6 also is named after Episode 2. So I think that's probably where that expectation of yours was coming from, Allison, because with a name like that, you think the entire book is going to be about Susan, and actually, no.
2: Well, it starts off with this interesting discussion of Susan. It's about the most Susan content I've ever seen. Yeah. Except the story where—that's her last story. Uh, but where uh, Dix did have a good time with— the 18-year gap is talking about the technology, and uh, we have a nice little Dick's prologue here, where uh, very atmospheric, and the cops talking about you know, imagine one of these days they say every policeman will have his own walkie-talkie. That'll be the We're already here talking about how Susan doesn't understand the complicated money system, and then I like that Dick's actually explains it in parentheses for the modern youth. Who weren't yes. born when this episode first aired <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> yeah and even ian has the exact same reaction as the policeman yes, to oh yes, we're gonna no, have a decimal system that'll, that'll be in the day it's like no it, it's coming it's but coming. all of those
2: winks are about society and technology not about the doctor's story which i thought right. was, was almost the opposite of what i expected
0: mm-hmm. and it's it's nice that he has put those in by the way, that, that prologue that you're talking about exists in the episode. Mm. Except of course we're not privy to the policeman's thoughts. I love the fact that Terrence Dix actually doesn't name the policeman but he does give him this nice little motivation <laughs> for going into the junkyard and then we find out later that oh those two school teachers disappeared and so did the police box. But that couldn't happen. There could be no connection between those two events, could there be? And it's like, yes, yes, indeed there was. Mm -hmm. Actually. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What else did we like about this novelization and story?
2: The doctor has been gaslighting Ian from the very first scene. (laughs) And lightly and sometimes heavily verbally abusing him. I didn't realize that that dynamic was established immediately. Sometimes he takes time off to gaslight Barbara, but usually just very on task to uh, demean Ian and uh, make sure that he questions the evidence of his eyes.
1: Yeah, yeah, from early on, the doctor feels like Ian is more of a pushover than barbara so he can be a little meaner to him mm-hmm. <laughs> barbara's, barbara's the one that's gonna bite back if he's mean to her oh, and he's he just gonna take it Well, so. is it
2: barbara is wise enough to not go at him without having all the cards whereas yeah. ian doesn't always think through uh, no. his challenges
0: yeah yeah exactly <laughs>
2: So do we think that the story of Ian was set parallel to the story of Zah? Because uh, (laughs) Zah is also given uh, quite the brutal tongue lashings by his elders, by his mother and his uh, perhaps father-in-law. Oh, God. Uh, That's parallel to, in some ways, to how Ian is so, so frequently and thoroughly castigated by the doctor. Hmm. But then Zah behaves very differently. Do we think that was an intentional parallel?
0: I very much doubt it. Because then you would have to parallel the other members of the TARDIS crew, which means that Barbara would probably be Old Mother, and Susan would be her, because, of course, the only woman in the tribe who is going after Zah is named I Her. I didn't think
2: it was all of like a direct like no, sort of I don't think it's one know, to one. mirror-verse. But I thought there was... <laughs> I thought that there was maybe a contrast between, well, I thought it was a, a comparison and contrast between the way Ian and the Doctor come somewhat to terms mm. with a, a more mutually appreciative dynamic, and how Zod does and does not do that.
0: Oh, I see.
2: But I could be, I could be making things up there.
0: I will say this: Terence Dix is trying his damnedest. To give these cavemen some psychological depth. Because they really don't have it on screen. Mm -hmm. In fact, the closest they have to anything like that on screen, apart from, you know, realizing he calls himself friend. They don't have a concept of friendship or anything like that. Is when Zah is trying to make conversation with them in the uh, Cave of Skulls after he has recaptured them and he realizes they're pissed at him. So he's trying very hard to say, oh, do you like this stone? It, it holds water. Is it good? <laughs> it's like, oh, God. But most of the time, no, they're they're fairly flat, whereas on the page, they're slightly rounder a bit, because he is trying. Mm. But as for that parallel, yeah, I'd say that is definitely us reading into the text and trying really hard to give Zos some Depth that he doesn't have. What else do we like? <sighs> oh, wow, that's a long silence.
1: Sorry, my, <laughs> brain, my brain
0: is... Uh, no, I get it. I yeah. get it. I I love the fact that Terrence Dix is giving the reason that Ian and Barbara eventually follow Susan. But he's not addressing the fact and this is probably us looking at it through a 2023 lens, that that would be an HR nightmare. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. It's like, we're curious about the student. We're just going to follow them home. It's like, what?
2: That doesn't seem strange to me at all. For really? Or really any time before maybe 1990.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I think a, that might be it. It's a very current thing, because... Yeah, I feel like I remember hearing about parents getting house calls or house visits from teachers. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and even now, quite frankly, the way it usually works is the lower income of the student, the more likely that even if the parent doesn't want that house call, uh, they really could do anything to stop it.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's so
2: true. So that didn't seem strange to me. Okay. That they're worried, okay, wait, well, does she really live in a junkyard? Is she Okay. <laughs> She live like in a shed. Is there a vicious dog? Is it <laughs> well? But it actually, in context, at all, you know, they're talking about her having these challenges. But what? Oh, maybe she is homeless. Maybe maybe she needs services. Maybe she's not in a safe place. Maybe. Maybe she's in the wrong district. That's actually just a, a exclusively American concern. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what, if, what if she's sneaking over here and stealing a better education? <laughs> but she doesn't right. have the property taxes to buy or rent here.
0: Oh, yeah. God. That sounds like the sort of script that <laughs> Steph Coburn would write rather than Anthony Coburn. I actually
2: mm-hmm. enjoyed the whole part uh, that was. In and around Coal Hill. Uh, because it did actually seem like Ian and Barbara were pretty fully formed as we came to know them. Oh, yeah. It was a Doctor who seemed very different.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: And so I thought that was the most fun part.
0: Yeah, and that has been noted, that the first Doctor becomes the first Doctor that we know about partially halfway through the Daleks... And then you get the Age of Destruction, where they're all at each other's throats. And by the end of that story, he's where he is going to be for the next couple of years. But then we get Marco Polo, and that story is missing. So we don't really get to see that development. We get to hear it, but we don't get to see it. And personally, I don't like the... Uh, as Dalton already knows, I don't really like the novelization of that book.
2: Mm-hmm. I'll say that the thing that's missing here is I think we have... Grown accustomed to a doctor who is always smart, or wise, or both at the same time, but here we have gaps where he's neither, and that—that that was the jarring thing.
0: Yeah, agreed, agreed. Mm-hmm. That the smoking—it's uh, nineteen sixty-three. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, I mean, obviously this encounter of all things would be enough to put anybody off smoking a pipe because like, oh, I don't want to get clubbed by a caveman again. Yeah. But yeah, the doctor's smoking a pipe and then we never, ever see him do it again.
2: Mm.
0: And I honestly would have thought that Terrence Sticks in 1981 would have been a little hesitant To depict a character in a children's television show, even from 1963, smoking. Really? Yeah. I once
2: again feel like, not forming a full sentence there, but once again, I think he'd be fine for the next 10 years.
0: Well, here's the thing. It's going to be a controversy in a story that's coming up that we're going to be reading. Or Mm. rather, it's going to be a controversy in the televised version, because it's not going to be in the novelization, or... Rather, I don't think it is. But I know that when they show characters smoking on television in the televised version of that story, there were some moral guardians who were like, oh, heavens no, we can't have that being depicted. So it's the very beginnings of the sort of thing where we have the warning on screen these days. If someone is smoking, there's actually a parental (laughs) warning about it. It's like, seriously? (laughs) It's
1: rated PG because you need to tell your kids what smoking is and yeah. then it's
0: bad. Exactly. It would be
2: incredibly... like A person would have to be really on the forward edge of anti-smoking yeah. to have that mindset in 1981, I think.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I don't think Dix ever did, to be honest. Because we, as, as we've said before, he was woke for his time, but not woke for ours. Yeah. So he would have been considered progressive by his own lights, but not by ours. So that's probably why that's there. That and the mention of the Red Indian. Oh god. <laughs> in nineteen eighty one. The Savage was it? Yeah. Oh yeah. No,
1: he says Red
0: Indian. He yeah. said res- yes. Red Indian. <laughs> yeah. Which is fine huh. because come to think of it, Barbara Wright uses that same term in Dalek Invasion of Earth, which he also adapted. So he sure. definitely
2: says Savage. Like, don't get exasperated, Susan Susan. Remember the Red Indian when he first when yes. he saw his first steam train? His savage mind probably thought it was an illusion too, and I was thinking Okay, everyone alive at that time when they saw the first steam train yes, <laughs> probably had a hard time yeah. unless it had been explained to them ahead of time what they were going to see with uh, sort of integrating this new experience with a new thing on the Earth. But this is something he definitely picks up on later. We have the word savage over and over again. Yes. Yeah. And they never think it's an illusion.
0: Yeah, that's actually something that the critic on YouTube who praises this story, talks about. He says, in that very first episode, the Doctor is seeing Ian and Barbara as savages. Then he travels back in time and sees what savage humans are actually like, and he comes to think, oh, these humans aren't half bad after all, because I've seen what real savages are like, (laughs) yeah. Oh, man. It's almost too subtle for this story, because this story, much like the doctor after he is smoking the pipe, just knocks you over the head mm. with most of its stuff. Yeah. But yeah. What did we dislike? I will say it was going
1: going back, having read lots of later stories, seeing the doctor be so willing to just like give prehistoric people fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, uh, current doctor would be like, no, we're, we can't do that. that. That'll change the course of history. That'll be, we're interfering too much. Mm. But just seeing the doctor just be like, yeah, give them fire. But some you know. of
2: them already had it. Like, Zaw's late father had some kind of technique they it's hinted was much like this one.
0: Yeah, they had it previously. So that's that would probably be answered now in that way, that the tribe did have it before yeah they just lost the secret of it but but but
1: again like yeah they lost the secret of it so they don't know how to do it so instead of them rediscovering it themselves we're just going to give it to them we're just going to show them yeah which is kind of you yeah, going against but but again like this is this is the first story this that kind of rule as as we've seen too it's it always kind of depends on the doctor's mood because mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes he doesn't care if he's fucking around with history you're right. too much sometimes it's whatever so uh yeah that, that was just interesting to see for for the first story to it just be yeah kind of thrown out the window like nah whatever give them fire
0: well also <laughs> bearing in mind the educational remit of the series at this point mm-hmm. they're still trying to be an educational program yeah so the thrust of this despite the fact that it is historically inaccurate would have been that you know, early cavemen had to discover something like this and uh, or else they would starve, they would die. Mm-hmm. So it's still kind of there, of course. that you notice that Dix does have the bit where he has Ian noting, oh yeah, there are no dinosaurs. Of course there aren't. It's like mm-hmm. yeah, because that still would have been thought of as a thing, in 1981 by some. I mean, I
2: say historically inaccurate because I am just generally annoyed by the sort of premise that ancient peoples are stupid. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not like I've got, you know, access to cutting edge research here uh, that's come out since this novelization, you know, have a very limited amount of knowledge of early humanity. I just found them being stupid in very tiresome ways, Um, but I mean, it's a it's an era you can make up whatever whatever you would like to. I'm curious uh, when it comes to potentially objectionable material, uh, how much of this head bashing and stabbing was on screen because I would think that less objectionable than an old man lighting a pipe outdoors might be Oh man, here we are in the human sacrifice cave. Uh, It's taking a really long time to try to cut our leather bonds on these rocks Let's use the sharp edge skull. Yes (laughs) Of the previously sacrificed. <laughs> Later, we will yes. smear them in animal fat and light them on fire. N- which to they scare do. And the primitive. So, uh, this seemed like it would be a, a somewhat graphic story on screen. I'm guessing uh, Dick's played that up a little bit. It,
0: or... it, it's somewhat worse on screen because okay. Susan discovers the whole. Oh, well, Ian comes by that whole idea of making the tribe think that they've died and they're ghosts because Susan is playing with one of the skulls and puts it <laughs> on a torch and says, look, it's almost alive and It's like, oh my God, you stupid girl
2: It's of a Wednesday mm. Adam move Yes it
0: fairy, really is. Very much And you notice that Dix changes that for the novelization because it, it that would just be terrible That being said, you're right he has made it a lot bloodier when Cal kills the old mother
1: mm, yeah.
0: Yeah, we, we see him raising the knife and then you cut to another scene. So you don't actually see what Dix shows us. And, but that scene where they're fighting in the cave and Zah kills Cal, yeah, on screen, that is pretty brutal. Even more brutal because they did it on film and it actually makes that sequence somehow worse. <laughs> yeah. It's really well directed by Maris Hussein. But yeah, he's pretty much captured it.
2: I guess I didn't love the storyline where the outsider turns out to be uh, absolutely not to be trusted, and who the people really need is the hereditary heir. Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm famously grouchy about that storyline.
0: Yeah, understandably.
2: It's not terrible, but.
0: Well, I have to admit. It is never established on screen that old mother is actually Zaw's mother.
2: I wondered about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she becomes like the Olivia Soprano of the story. I love it. I actually love it. It's like, ah, you're not going to make fire. Your father did and it killed him. And look at you. You're just well, that's what I'm saying.
2: She like really singes his eyebrows. With yes. <laughs> with the way the doctor does Ian. And that's why I thought they were setting up more of a. Dix was setting up more of a a parallel.
0: I I love the fact that Doctor Who Magazine, on their last page, used to have this mock newspaper done from the Doctor Who Universe, and they had an opinions column, and the opinion column written by her is, (laughs) fire will kill us all in the end. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Dix has done some good improvements here he's left some stuff alone thank god the famous speeches for instance that the first doctor makes in the first episode and the second those are left untouched he avoids the doctor who joke initially uh. but then he comes back to it
1: he couldn't help himself
0: <laughs> no as a matter of fact he weirdly has the doctor say oh just call me doctor That's not on screen, and it causes a problem for later on when Ian says, Dr. Foreman. So it's like, uh, really?
2: I joined the panel, or joined the podcast, as a regular panelist with the season two premiere. Yes. And a topic of interest then was whether each novelization treated Susan as actually the the doctor's granddaughter. Yeah. Or... Whether that was more of the nature of... Describe more the nature and warmth of their relationship. Mm -hmm. So I guess I expected there to be a bit more of a hint on one side or the other of that in this novelization. It doesn't seem to be addressed at all.
0: Mm -mm. No.
2: I expected a bit of a wink or a nudge about whatever conclusion... Dix favored? Did not have
0: that. Yeah, it doesn't. It seems that Terrence Dix is more than willing to go script a page on this one and say, she's his granddaughter. That's all there is Mm -hmm. to it. Yeah, not willing to entertain all the nonsense of later fans who are like, oh, the Doctor can't have sex. Ooh. Yeah, the same fans who are probably freaking out now at the latest episode in which the 14th Doctor appears to be bisexual. Which is lovely. I think it's absolutely lovely to have David Tennant (laughs) deliver a line, which is unambiguously calling another man hot and then saying, ooh, is that who I am now? (laughs) And (laughs) having Donna Noble respond with, oh, sunshine, I I think we could all tell. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) oh my god. God. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. But there's there's a subset of fandom that just cannot... admit to the fact that the doctor had a child who then had another child and had a granddaughter
1: even if it's not a biological grandchild like she could be an adopted granddaughter she could have a close relationship they could have been together so long that the age difference is just enough for her to call him grandfather like it doesn't have to be anything biological (laughs)
0: Yeah. At all. <laughs> yeah, and and I think the only reason stuff like this comes up is because of, for instance, that line in the novelization of the Five Doctors where she calls him Doctor rather than grandfather so the Dalek can overhear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I think that's yeah, and we and don't even get me started with the whole Eric Sayward Lady Lauren theory because Jesus Christ, <laughs> we don't want to get all too terribly fan wanky <laughs> on this podcast.
2: One uh. um, nice thing about this novelization is that it's not full of obscure references and winks about later stories. It is as straightforward as the original, mm. the, the, of what I know of the original. Um, I talk a big game here, but I know the original, and of course, I've only seen a few minutes of this episode, and I thought that was actually a nice way to do it. Yeah, Instead of mm-hmm. trying to sort of dot every I and cross every T about how this story fits into the intervening 18 years of stories. I thought that was a good way to do it. Yeah. I, I would say he might have overcommitted to that approach. He could have done a little bit more of a wink and a nudge, but it, it's, it's a viable choice.
0: There is one, and it's a very good one, mm-hmm. and it's in chapter five that Susan, when she sees that the TARDIS has not changed, says that the chameleon circuit is faulty. And is that
2: okay? Yeah, because
0: Chameleon Circuit had not even been called that mm-hmm. until Legopolis.
2: Did they talk about the concept in that first episode that it should blend in?
0: Oh, yeah. But they, ne- okay. but they never called it Chameleon Circuit. Yeah. It's not called that until 1981, so that's Dick's very definitely saying. In 1981, we call it the Chameleon Circuit. Therefore, in the story, she will call it the Chameleon Circuit. Which is, yeah, it's just fan-wankish enough to really please... The purists, which is yeah.
2: fine. Uh, the other nice fan wank is uh, Ian's parenthetical thoughts. Yeah, oh. Grandfather knows, Sub-Susan. You know, you mustn't blame yourself. And in parentheses, why not? Thought Ian sourly. <laughs> the old fool's ah. quite right. It's all his fault. <laughs> <laughs> right. There are two or three of those in there that I thought were uh, fan service I enjoyed.
0: Oh, yeah. Terrence Sticks loves his parentheticals, and he's really in love with them in this particular one. Which is perfectly fine by me, because we love our some parentheticals. Especially if it's Ian being bitchy towards the Doctor, which he doesn't get to do all that often. There are a few changes I don't like. Barbara gets the line, this place is evil, rather than the Doctor getting it. I don't know why that bothers me, but it really does. But there's not much in the way of change here. Which is fine. That's what you want with... A novelization of a story that the kids are going to get to see in two weeks, <laughs> but <laughs> you do want it to be there so that for those very few people who do not have VHS recorders yet, this is what they're going to look back to. Wait, in
2: 1981?
0: Yeah, 1981. Yeah, they were still ridiculously expensive in 1984. Okay, I was
2: going to say, I I don't remember knowing of an individual having one until like 1984 or so. Okay, I'm sorry, I thought you were saying it was unusual to not have one in 81. I was going to say. Yeah,
0: I was saying it's unusual for it because BBC Video wouldn't wouldn't release the very first Doctor Who story that they released on video until 82. That, That
2: actually surprises me that it was that early.
0: Yeah, I, I need to double-check that, <laughs> because I'm almost certain <laughs> that um, Revenge of the Cybermen... Hang on a sec. <laughs> I don't usually have to do this very often during the recording, do I? But this time I'm having to. 1980- oh? I got it wrong. My motherfucker. Yeah, I got it wrong. 1983. Still very early. Yeah, I was a year off. But yeah. Uh, there would have been very few people that would have had a video recorder in 1981, and probably just as few who would have been able to watch the entire four-part story as it was being re-aired on BBC2, though the viewing numbers for that repeat season were very good. Anything else we want to say about this particular book? Just, Just the ending, the way that it sets up the Daleks...
1: Yes, it was I thought it was really effective, and we don't always get that, you know? We don't always get kind of a tie-in to the next story, but the way that this one sets the scene and prepares us for what, what is coming,
0: I, I really enjoyed that. Though, when we first started the podcast, it was indeed confusing when Danny, Sheena, and I... Well, when Danny and Sheena got to the second book, The Daleks... And suddenly they are being introduced to Ian and Barbara and Susan and the Doctor all over again. (laughs) Because that tie is definitely much more faithful to what we see on screen. It's very faithfully recreated. But if you read them in story order, very next story, boom. Yeah, they didn't meet the cavemen. It's the first time they're meeting each other. (laughs) Absolutely madness. But that's fine. (laughs) Allison, what were you going to say about uh, this this book?
2: This is one of the shortest ones we've read in a long time. A PDF version we were looking at was 95 pages. And I thought it actually moved pretty nicely through about the first third. And by the end, I thought this could be about 65 pages.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It It's not terribly padded. It's uh, In fact, the televised story feels more padded than the novelization does. Dix is definitely making it go very quickly and that's a fine thing because again it's only that first episode and the first few minutes of the second episode that people really care all that much about and the end of course when you see that they're about to walk out onto a planet not knowing that they're walking into radiation Mm. Mm -hmm. which is also going to be changed for the novelization because the whitaker novelization says it's air pollution so yeah it's all over the place (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all over the place. Mm. Well, shall we go to greet? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. As we always do, Let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.71. Hmm. Yeah, it's a bit high. The reviews quoted here have been edited for length. Sorry to leave you out this time, everyone, but keep them coming. James gives it three stars and says novelizations have a tendency to be a bit one dimensional, but Dix brings a depth to the secondary characters here that just wasn't present or possible in the TV episodes. Whether this is Dix embellishing the screenplay to make the novel read better, or if there was detail in the original script that wasn't apparent in the episodes isn't clear, but it works. The secondary story featuring the cavemen is really only a device to introduce us to the characters and premises of this and future stories, and while well Well told, arguably better than the TV original episodes, it's always going to be difficult to try and cram a real plot into such a short story, while also introducing four central characters and the beginnings in science fiction backstory of the TARDIS and its capabilities. True. Christian Petrie gives it four stars and says, The book starts off strong with Ian and Barbara heading to find out more about Susan, thus leading to the Doctor. The introduction to the Doctor and the TARDIS is great, along with the Doctor taking Ian and Barbara. With the reactions and interactions between the main characters, we see where everyone comes from. Once we reach the cave men, things slow down as it becomes get captured, escape, and get captured again. The cavemen are just there, simple characters with not much going for them. The bright side is that it feels that Terrence Sticks had problems with this as well, since the first episode and half of the series... See, um, I'm sure he means half of the story. Takes up more than half the story. Must be talking about the book. Also, he focuses more on the main characters' interactions during this time as well. The K-Bun plot does move faster than the actual episode. Overall, not too bad, starting off this Doctor Who book range. And finally, Martin Milholm gives it five stars and said, Loved it! Very first Doctor Who adventure. What's not to love? (laughs) <laughs> that's the whole review when we first did this book Sheena gave it a 3.8 hmm. Danny gave it a 4 and I gave it a 3.5 so Dalton out of 5 stars what would you give this hmm.
1: I'd probably give this one a three. It's not a super flashy novelization. Like we've said, Terrence Six kind of sticks to the script-a-page uh, formulaic way. Uh, if, like you said, he wrote it in two weeks. So I imagine that, yeah, he was just trying to get this thing done and get it out. But it, it was fun to look back at the, the first story fun to see ian and barbara again eh, susan's kind of whatever but um <laughs> it was <laughs>
0: good to good to see the first doctor again so I'll, I'll give it a three for a moment there i thought you were about to go back in time because i thought for sure you were gonna say it was a quick read it was a fun read i, I can if you want me to <laughs> <laughs> nah that's fine we've got enough of it all right and allison out of five stars what would you give this?
2: Well, the day I was reading this it, the temperatures did not get above freezing even the, during the daylight hours. So if I were going back in time, I would still definitely not call it a beach book. No. Um, <laughs> <I would have laughs> reading it on the beach. Um, I'm going to seem like the crankiest jerk compared to uh, you and Danny and Sheena, but I'm going to go with two, and I don't mean that in a mean way, but this is functionary dicks. Mm-hmm. And I don't have anything... I, there are a few things I have against it. <laughs> but it's, uh, Like so many Terrence textbooks, books, the fatty goodness is all loaded into the first 30 pages. In this case, that's not at all his fault. That's just how the story is. So I would recommend anyone interested in this read basically up until they start on their
0: journey, and then you can... Or not off to sleep. Much as you do when you watch the televised version. Okay, <laughs> I I get that. And as for me, I I think I would actually downgrade my score a little bit. I I have given better books than this a three point five, mm-hmm. and it's no fault of Terran Stix's at all at all that I'm going to give this a three point two five because I can't quite go as far down as a three on this because it is a perfectly valid representation of the televised story. The problem is the original televised story. The first 25 minutes are magical. About three or four minutes of episode two are also magical. And then the last 30 seconds or so of episode four are pretty magical. The rest, yeah. Dix has done what he can with what he had, what Anthony Coburn gave him, what Steph Coburn seems to think is Holy Grail-level writing. And it isn't. It simply Mm -hmm. isn't. So Dix is doing script-to-page, and unfortunately the script he's been given isn't all that great, and he's improved it. He really has. There are a few bits that still don't read quite as well as they could, a few changes that I don't agree with, but most of the stuff here is exactly what we got on screen, and that's what we get. So, 3.25. So, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we are finally, finally, getting back to Peter Davison's final season as the Fifth Doctor with our discussion of Warriors of the Deep, which will include our good friend of the podcast, Jim Sangster. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter, we're at BC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.